0: Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we have a lot to cover this morning, I hope to get you out of here before 2, Um, one day that's going to actually happen, (coughs) that will be the day that we lose members. (laughs) 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we do have a lot to cover this morning, Um, I want to remind you uh, where we have come from. If you were not here last week, then you missed the early part of the what we do when we get ready to go through a book. Um, we'll be in the book of Corinthians for about a year, uh, mainly because we'll break for uh, Advent and a few other events, but uh, we'll be here for about a year in this book. Uh, last week we gave you a great bit of detail about where the church started in Acts 18, that um, Paul was a part of that. Paul, uh, we have no doubt, wrote this letter, uh, and that this church. Um, has got, um, is very familiar to us because it's full of problems. So if you've grown up in the church, uh, you can recognize this church has a tremendous amount of issues. And yet we learned last week that Paul started with grace. He started by reminding these believers of who they are in Christ. And I said last week, if all the problems that we listed... um, I would have written a letter that sounded much different, and I would uh, assume that most of us would have written a letter that would have sounded much differently, and yet Paul, who had more invested in the church than any of us, obviously, began his letter with grace. And may that be um, the way our speech is governed as well uh, toward those who are struggling in their walk with Christ. Uh, We said uh, last week, we called it grace-centered discipleship, which is one of the pillars of our church, that although we are all on the same road, those of us who are believers, we are all on the same path with Christ. Some of us may be further down that road than others, and we are not to shoot the ones behind us, but we are to be reminded um, of our own failures and our own struggles and our own weaknesses, and that it is not, grace does not exist Um, to just excuse our sin. It exists, Romans 2, 4, the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. The gospel's goal of grace is to move toward holiness. But that is a journey for all of us. Last week, if you were here and you uh, are... um, a theologian or you're real serious about holiness and you didn't listen to that whole sermon, you may have thought, well, this church is all about grace. They don't care anything about holiness. They don't care about that. And I think you, uh, if you had listened to the whole sermon, we emphasize that greatly. Uh, But I told you, Paul may begin with grace and he's going to remind them of who they are in Christ, but he is most definitely going to address the problems Uh, And that is much of this letter, and it begins uh, in verses 10. Let me pray for us. Uh, We need the Lord's help for sure. Lord God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be um, our helper here, that he would help us understand these verses, you would give us wisdom, help us to be reminded of who we are in Christ, and help us to be reminded of what is most important for your church, And that is the very grace that you extended to us. You desire to extend to others. May our strongest passions be for the proclamation of the gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Of its power. Woo! Man, I wish you could have been with me the last week while I studied this. We don't have enough time, but I'm going to take a lot of it. (laughs) Here we go. The first four chapters of this letter to the Corinthians church is going to deal with division in the church. It is a big deal to Paul, a church that Paul... Planted a church that Paul poured his life out into for 18 months, and others, including Apollos, possibly the Apostle Peter, poured their lives out for this church, and now Chloe's people has gotten word back to Paul that we are divided. There's quarreling, there's problems, and everyone thinks they're following someone else, and there are issues here. And Paul said, I'm gonna address that. I don't want to take four chapters to address that. That's how big of a deal. This is for Paul. We're going to take six sermons in four chapters uh, to address the same thing because there is much for us to learn. Now, I said last week, and I'm going to say it again, uh, this is going to be an uncomfortable study for us because most of us who grew up in the church, we have all of our theological leaning, we have all of our stuff, and here's the reality. Some of us are prone to division. Some of us are. And and I really believe that there's some application here for us today as a church, a church that's about to celebrate three years old, a church that has grown quite a lot. Last time we ordered food for our anniversary two years ago, I think it was for 35. Uh, This week it's going to be for 100. So uh, we have opportunities now for more division Amen? And so we need to pay careful attention to Paul's instructions. There are quarrels among you. This is the same term that Paul uses as a fruit of the flesh in Galatians 5. Characterizes a fallen and angry, selfish people. It's also listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and if you remember 1 Timothy chapter 6. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when we dealt with elders, it's uh, an anti-characteristic of an elder. The idea of quarreling, battling with one another, striving against one another, is anti-God and should never, ever Ever characterize the church. This is a big deal. Now, I know some of you are already beginning to think, but there are things worth fighting for, and yes, there are, and we will deal with that in a minute. But what were these particular believers divided on? Well, the problem could have been style related. As you know, every church has different pastors with different personalities and giftings, and they all preach with different styles. Uh, Even if they preach expositionally, as we um, try to do here, uh, they will vary on how that comes across. Clearly, Paul had planted this church, but others had taught in it as well, and it could be that some didn't necessarily like Paul's style, or maybe better said, uh, he wasn't much um, of an orator, that would be a way to say it. In 2 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 9 through 11, Paul says this, I do not want to... Appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. That's the way to describe someone. Your letters are strong, but when we get around you, you look a bit weak, and your speech is not of much account. May mean that Paul was a better author than he was a speaker. Now, one of the other prominent leaders in the church in Corinth was Apollos, and he was described much differently than Paul was. In Acts 18, verse 24, it says, Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. So Paul is described as having a weak bodily presence and his speech of no account, while Apollos is described as someone with an eloquent speaking style. Do you see the potential problems already? It could be race-related. One scholar suggests the following. Apollos was, a noted, uh, was noted as an Alexandrian, an Egyptian, uh, a Jew. Peter's called by his Aramaic name, which possibly suggests um, that those who followed him spoke Aramaic. Might have been Palestinian Jews. As we said earlier, there were many Jews who had been dispersed. Um, but there were also several ethnic Corinthians, Jews uh, who I mean ethnic Corinthians who had come to saving faith, along with many slaves, and uh, but these these would have been um, citizens of Rome, and some of these may have been a bit arrogant about being a citizen of Rome, uh, and might have looked down on the less than sophisticated non-Romans, and this may explain why Paul doesn't address very specifically any theological differences. Maybe there weren't any. Maybe the problem was more of an ethnic division. Aramaic-speaking Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, Romans, and Alexandrians. Oh, what a serious mixing bowl of groups there in a church that's brand new that doesn't have any church seminars yet. No study books. No how to do church. Three, it could have been theologically related. This seems to be a list of the factions. You've got Paul's group, you've got Apollos' group, you've got Peter's group, and you've got Jesus' group. Much has been made of the characteristics of the leader. Paul was the freedom party, you may say. Uh, It included uh, discussing Gentiles by faith alone. As you well know, Paul and Peter had quite the dust-up over following the Jewish rules, Apollos was from a more philosophical type party. Uh, Cephas Peter was from a Jewish, Jewish traditionalist, or maybe you would call a legalistic type party. Uh, there was clearly some distinctives there in the church at that time. Um, and then those who would say, well, I don't know about this passage, but I like those people who are following Jesus. Except for most people. Believe that those are the ones who are saying, Listen, I'm not going to follow any of y'all. I'm just going to follow what Jesus does, and I'm not going to listen to any of you other ones who actually walk with Jesus. I'm going to do it on my own, or maybe even uh, they were kind of maybe the group that was just kind of mystical in some ways, and they thought they had some kind of special revelation on their own about Jesus. Um, There's not a lot here in this passage that gives us the theology or the motivation. Of each group. I tend to land more uh, on the theological issue, the personality issue. I don't think it's much of an ethnicity uh, thought here. I think it's more about uh, the style and the different ways they approached the Christian walk. What we do know, or at least it seems from the text, uh, is that this division is not being led by Paul, and it's not being led by Apollos, and most certainly probably not led by Peter. None of these people are attempting to divide the church, but rather there are people who are trying to say, I follow this guy, and that's the guy I want to follow. So we don't know for sure exactly what these divisions are, but I'm going to help us try to draw some fairly decent conclusions today. Dr. Bruce Winter, a New Testament scholar and director of the Institute for Early Christianity in the Greco-Roman world, it uh, gives us quite a bit of help in his uh, wonderful book, uh, After Paul Left Corinth, The Influence of Secular Ethics and Social Change. And I believe it sheds a considerable amount of light on the kind of division that Paul would have been dealing with in Corinth. In Rome, to be a great orator was a big deal. In the first century Rome, if you were good at that, you can make that your occupation. In Corinth and in other places, they were called sophists. A sophist was a paid teacher of philosophy and rhetoric in ancient Greece, associated in popular thought with moral skepticism and special or spacious, specious reasoning. They were highly skilled in their gifting to speak, and more often than not, this is who they enlisted. The different provinces would list the best orators to go and speak on behalf of Rome or behalf of, the, of their little city to the Roman emperor. So if they needed something done, they didn't send the guy who couldn't talk well. They sent the guy who could really talk and reason well. They spoke in public forums, which you could attend for a fee. We should do that except nobody would come, (laughs) and they offered their own schools for students who could afford to learn from them. So you could hold an event and say, hey, you want to listen to me reason and talk about things, pay to get in, and you'll be amazed. And if you were amazed, you may find your way up to the stage and say, hey, can I get more of that? And they would say, yes, you can. For a monthly fee of only $19.95 a month, you can get more of that. And these sophists are the ones who train the social elite of the Roman Empire. They would train them to handle politics and speak in the criminal courts, etc. Now guess what these students were called? Disciples. The term disciple was neither a Jewish nor Christian invention. There is substantial evidence that that its use meant the pupil of a teacher long before the first century. And so these disciples would not only imitate their teachers um, rhetorically, their rhetorical styles, but even their dress, even the way they walked. They would even attempt to follow their accents, and they tried to speak as eloquently as they could to match their teachers. Their goal was to sound good and to look good and to be exactly like their teacher. Now, this was an extremely lucrative and competitive market, especially in Corinth. Fees were high, and if you made yourself important and powerful in this world, then you could even garner imperial favors from Rome, and you would even be able to have a statue of yourself In the city. Now another term for disciple was zealot. Defined then as an exclusive loyalty to a teacher. And students were encouraged to be zealous by criticizing other teachers. Now watch what's happening. This is the culture of Corinth. And the culture of Corinth was... If you had a teacher and you were a pupil, not only did you imitate everything they did, you criticized everybody who didn't follow the same teacher. Including, in some cases, students were known to walk behind other teachers, and anytime that teacher made a mental error or grammatical mistake, they would be so busy if they were following me, <laughs> to then ridicule publicly that teacher. As you well know, I am not a great orator. If the word has more than two syllables, uh, I'm going to butcher it. Uh, that's me. But they would follow these teachers, and if they could make fun of them, they would. One such event is recorded in which some of the teachers' disciples had their slaves, watch this social elite, they had their slaves go and beat the guy who was talking trash about them, uh, but they accidentally killed him. They didn't want to kill him, they wanted to beat him, but you know, sometimes things happen. <laughs> And this kind of quarreling was the social norm in places like Corinth. This is how you handled yourself if you had a teacher. You found your favorite one, you camped with that one, and you hated all the rest. Welcome to Southern Baptist life. Or any other denomination, may I add. Dr. Winner sums it up by saying, zealousness for one's teacher by promoting his attributes and at the same time openly criticizing the deficiencies of, of another epitomized the behavior of the disciples of first century teachers. No doubt this cultural reality impacted the church in Corinth the way new believers, new believers, were behaving in their new roles as students with their teachers as exactly as they had seen demonstrated in the city they grew up in. You find your teacher, you camp with them, and you despise everybody else. And this was not about the gospel as much as it was about Which teacher sounded better? Which teacher looked better? Which teacher had a better argument? Who was more well-spoken? And Paul knew that this was anti-gospel and would destroy the church in Corinth. Because it places the power of the gospel conversion not in the cross, but in those who speak about the cross. Let me tell you something, great speeches will not save anyone in the kingdom of God. If we check the theology and or personality of all the preachers who have preached the sermons, when we became believers, we would find a tremendously diverse group. And here you are, a believer. I still remember the name of the pastor who preached at the camp that I came to faith at. Mike Morrow, who Wayne happens to know, I was a young 12-year-old kid. I still remember the sermon, and his whole deal was that if you come to Christ and you give up nothing, you have never come to Christ. I remember that. I know nothing else about his theology. In fact, I got a sneaky suspicion we disagree on some things but he preached the gospel. And I stand here today as a pastor because that man preached the gospel faithfully. I often have wondered how guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin and so many other dead guys would react if they came back to the church today. Do we really think they would be thrilled with the theological tribes and divides that we have set up based on some of the things they have written Go read them a little bit more carefully. Martin Luther had no intention of starting a whole bunch of different denominations. You know that, right? Let me help you out. If they came back today and they found out some of the things we were saying that that we got led in them, that we were led to do by what we read about them, they would probably punch most of us in the throat. Because we have misrepresented what they were attempting to do. Yes, yes. There are clear differences in theology and styles and personalities which can bring about different denominations. Clear differences that align us in our denominations. But some of these things we fight over are not issues which divide us into denominations. They simply just divide us. And that is sinful. We have come to a place and have been for many, many years. This is not new to us. This clearly, it's here in Corinth. But we have moved to a place where we will not even associate with others who disagree with on us on non-gospel central truths. We will not even participate in ministry with them. We fold our hands when they speak as if we know all the right stuff and they are all wrong, despite the fact that people have been fighting over some of these non-central truths for hundreds and hundreds of years. But we line up behind our teacher, don't we? And we despise all the rest. Unity versus uniformity. We can be united with brothers and sisters in Christ who may disagree on the method of baptism. I think it's clear Others don't. And we can be divided on how we see that, but we can still be united in Christ. I'm afraid, as a pastor of a young church, that we must be careful, or we will end up much like this church, divided over particular leaders or particular theological points. We carry, most of us, our banners high. Most of you say, or some of you may be saying to yourself, "Uh, I don't really care about doctrine. But you do, because all of us have doctrine. Doctrine is when I say God does this, and you say, I don't think God works that way. That's because you have doctrine. (laughs) We all have doctrine. We all have our system of how we think things should work. And listen, I most certainly have mine. And I am heavily opinionated about them. But I love what Paul Washer, who also is very, very clear about where he stands. He is clearly in the Reformed theological camp. But he makes what I believe is a very solid observation. Anytime your banner becomes anything other than Jesus Christ, you ought to be afraid of hell. If your banner is, I am a Calvinist, if your banner is, I'm a homeschooler, if your banner is this or that or anything else, if you rally under any other name than Jesus Christ, you are in danger. You are, as he repeats, in danger. Paul knew that he himself would die, he knew that Apostles would die. He knew Peter would die. Leaders die. The gospel continues. And speaking so eloquently that everyone will believe and follow as a method to win people to Christ, it's not how the gospel works. The power of the gospel is in the message, not the messenger. I doubt very many of you came to Christ because the preacher or Sunday school teacher or Wednesday night leader explained what theological tribe they were members of. But rather because you heard that you were a sinner, bound for hell, and that Jesus had paid for your sin through his blood shed on the cross, and that if you repent and believe, you could be made right. Now that preacher's words may Maybe it could have been better. His theology might need improving. Maybe his eloquence could have been sharper. But the power of the gospel is not in men. It is in the word of God preached. The reason our churches are in trouble is not because people don't follow a particular systematic theology. It's because churches don't preach God's word anymore. This is demonstrated so well in the life of Charles Spurgeon. I wanted to figure out a way to sum this up. I tried to come up with a way. I'm just going to sum it up, but I cannot. Uh, Charles Spurgeon is probably uh, my favorite guy, uh, favorite dead guy, <clears throat> the prince of preachers. Um, I love him because he, um, believe it or not, it wasn't very expositional. <laughs> uh, but he uh, nevertheless was a great preacher, uh, and um, he struggled with great bouts of depression. Um, such a, a real writer about his own struggles <clears throat> of his faithfulness to the Lord and yet his own battles with his own darkness. And I appreciate the honesty. Um, but to read his testimony is one that I think is worth us taking the time. So if you're tired, you should have went to bed earlier. Amen. <laughs> Wake up. we got a few minutes left and, and I'll wrap us up. But I want to read how he came to faith. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists and how they sang so loudly they made people's heads ache. (laughs) But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my head ache. And the minister did not come, they were probably contemporary. Anyway, um, the, the minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. <laughs> he was obliged to stick to his text. There's a novel idea. For the simple reason that he had little else to say, probably another good idea. And the text was Isaiah 45, that said, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. And the preacher began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, now looking don't take a deal of pain. Lifting your foot or your finger, it is just look. Well, a man didn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man didn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, he said, many on ye are looking to yourselves. But it is no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some on ye ye say, we must wait for the Spirit's working." You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, Look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. I'm reading it as he wrote it, exclamation points. We had gone to about that length. He managed to spin out 10 minutes or so. Wouldn't y'all be lucky. He was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. <laughs> well, I did. I did. But I had not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. (laughs) However, it was a good blow struck right home. He continued, and you always will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do. You, man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live virgin i saw at once the way of salvation i know not what else he said i did not take much notice of it i was so possessed with that one thought like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up and the people only looked and were healed so it was with me i had been waiting to do 50 things but when i heard the word look what a charming word it seemed to me oh i looked into i could almost have looked my eyes away There, and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and at that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, of the precious blood of Christ, and simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. It is not everyone who can remember the very day and hour of his deliverance. But as Richard Neal, he was an old English missionary from Spurgeon's time, said... At such a time of the day, clang went every harp in heaven, for Richard Neal was born again. It was so even with me. The clock of mercy struck in heaven the hour and the moment of my emancipation. Oh, for the time had come. Between half past ten o'clock and when I entered the chapel and half past twelve o'clock when I was back at home, what a change had taken place in me. I had passed from darkness into marvelous light, from death to life. How did Charles Spurgeon come to Christ? By the power of the cross, through the preaching of the gospel. That's how he came to Christ. Not from eloquent words or the discussion of which soteriology the pastor was from. Not from a perfect sounding worship band who sang, plug in whatever songs you prefer. Not from the lighting turned down just enough. Not with just enough fog in the room accompanied by a soft piano piano being played, not because the gifts of the spirits were displayed or not displayed, depending on your theological leaning, not because of some quote of Jonathan Edwards or Martin Luther or because of some liturgical reading before the sermon, and not because everyone repeated a catechism, and not because I read from your preferred translation. No, 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 no. How did Spurgeon come to Christ? Listen to the word of God. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. That's how Spurgeon became a believer. You want to change this country? You want to change churches? Preach the gospel from the pulpit. And call people to it. You may be saying, Jason, it's getting late. We get it. Why is it such a big deal for our church? Because I pray that I don't do a lot of things as your pastor. But I pray, and you better be praying, that we never attempt to proclaim the gospel by any other means. Fancy ideas, fads, that we... And you hold me and the other elders accountable to get in this pulpit and say, thus saith the Lord, and preach the gospel. God, help us if we ever think that the way people come to Christ is through some man-made technique. It is the gospel preached. And we are vulnerable to this day. We all have our theological leanings. But may we never forget that our first priority is to preach the gospel and to win the lost. Aren't you thankful that the man who stood in the pulpit and preached the day you got saved didn't check your theological leanings before he preached to you? But that he just preached the gospel. Be more excited about that idea. Listen, may we be more excited about preaching the gospel than whatever theological tribe you are from or what denomination you participate with or which leaders you like best or preaching styles you prefer. We have been very intentional on making this church a larger tent for varied theological leanings on tertiary issues. It's been intentional by us. We have a clear statement of faith that we like. And the fact that we love it because we worked for a long time on it. Amen, Chad? <laughs> we worked for a long time on it. Our elders will passionately defend the statement of faith that we believe is based on clear and obvious teachings of Scripture. However, there are other doctrines that are less clear, and in fact, some that the Bible is almost silent on, while others are full of great mystery that have been argued over for hundreds and hundreds of years. And let me help you out you won't solve it. You won't. And so let's be about preaching the gospel. Yes, doctrine is important. And yes, you should study. And yes, you should find a camp maybe. But God forbid that we quarrel over it. To expend energy fighting one another while people go to hell. Let us preach the gospel and call people to it. I have many more notes, but not much time. Let me just say it this way. I want my passion as your pastor to supersede all of my other non-essential doctrinal passions. Get with me some time for coffee. I have passionate beliefs. <laughs> I have passionate beliefs that I think are right. Although I think they're mysterious, I still think they're right. But I'm more convinced the power rescue people from the darkness rest in the preaching of God's Word with the gospel and the cross on full display. And I want my passions for that to far surpass my disagreements over non-essential doctrinal passions. And listen, I'm not the greatest preacher by any stretch of the imagination. And some of you are like, you're not. (laughs) I've heard others. But I am comforted to quote something I've quoted before when Charles Spurgeon's grandfather was in a church And Charles Spurgeon came through the back door. And Charles Spurgeon's grandfather says, Here comes my grandson. He may preach the gospel better than I can, but he cannot preach a better gospel. Oh, may we preach the gospel in this church. And you may say, well, what is the gospel? I'm glad you asked. The gospel is that you were born into sin. Nobody had to teach you how to sin. You sin naturally all by yourselves. And that sin separated you from a holy, holy, holy God. And you had no way back to Him. But even when you were in rebellion toward that God, that God loved you so much that He sent Christ, His only begotten Son, to take the punishment that you richly deserved he would take it himself on the cross. And for those who would repent of their sins and believe in that atonement for their sins, that they could be made right before God and be brought back into the right fellowship with their Father. That's the gospel. So he who has ears, let him hear. And I will repeat what some shoemaker said Well, over a hundred years ago, look unto Christ and be saved. You say, Well, do I have to repeat a magical prayer or anything? Do what the Bible says repent and believe. You don't need to take my hand to do that. I'll be happy to counsel you if you have questions. Any of our elders would. We stay behind every week to make sure that doesn't happen. But you can repent and believe now, you can repent and believe in your car, at your house, you can repent and believe. People say, well, how will I know I became a Christian? Because your life will never be the same again. Not perfect, but never the same again. Let me pray for us as Keith comes. Lord God, I pray that we would be a church that is serious about doctrine Lord, I pray, God, that we would have a deep desire to know your word better, to understand you better, to be protectors of solid doctrine, Lord, I pray. I pray, God, that we will never say uh, that it's not important. But I pray, Lord, as we pursue that, that you would give our people and our elders and everyone who stands in a classroom or a small group or a pulpit a deep passion to preach the gospel and God may we align behind that and not behind all the various teachers that we can line ourselves behind Lord you have gifted us with different personalities and different giftings different leanings and Our minds work differently. Lord God, I know that it's not wrong to enjoy study or to find favorite preachers or people we like to listen to. But I pray, God, you would cause us, through the Holy Spirit, to check our hearts if we care more about that than those who don't know you. And God, I thank you for the grace that you have extended to me for all those in here who believe that though we did not deserve it you put men in classrooms and pulpits maybe a Sunday school teacher maybe a lady teaching a VBS God they all didn't maybe know all their theological stuff but God they knew enough to tell us to look unto you and God that you have been gracious to draw us to your side and rescue us and we thank you for that this morning and God we celebrate it and may our lives be worthy of that gospel God give us hearts for the lost give us hearts for your word and help us to be people who proclaim truth to a world desperately in need of it your name we pray celebrate a little bit with worship and then I'll come back with our benediction